this is, or will soon be, a time of year when college and university students will be leaving and uh, going back to campus. Although I realize this year they may not be leaving and going back to campus. They may already be on campus, but uh, in, in a normal year, uh, that will be taking place uh, very soon. And, and here's a conversation that I think is probably pretty standard uh, between uh, a dad or a mom or both and uh, that college or university student as they get ready to go back to school. Be careful. Stay out of trouble. And study hard. I mean, you know, you could go on and on and on, but that pretty much covers it. Right? Now, in a sense, that's what Paul is doing here at the very end of his letter to the Thessalonians. He is giving them broad, general commands that we characterized last week as a to-do list. But I don't want you to misunderstand because we often talk about legalism uh, in the sense that legalism is usually some sort of a to-do list, not very long. But the contrast is this. When a legalist uh, you know, focuses on their list, it's very narrow. You do this specifically this way at this time for this reason, and then do this, and it's very specific, very spelled out, but Paul is not at all being legalistic here. He is, he is focusing on the big picture. He is, he is giving the broad advice, the broad categories to just be mindful of in regard to our holiness, our personal holiness, our sanctification. Now, just like the college student who goes away with that advice, be careful, stay out of trouble, and study hard, they may come home at the end of the semester and the parents may find out they haven't really been that careful, they have really been in trouble, and they haven't really studied that hard. But they are not disowned by their parents at that point. They may be reprimanded, maybe uh, maybe uh, scolded, uh, uh, or, or perhaps uh, there'll be other uh, repercussions, but... They're not told, they're not told they can't come home again. They're no longer part of the family. Uh, because that advice was given to them that they might, you know, get along well, uh, things would go easier for them in school and that they would be more, more successful and, and, and get better grades and be happier. Uh, it, it was a positive exhortation. It wasn't a legalistic standard for measuring up to mom and dad's love. And it's the same way here when we come uh, to the end of our letter in 1 Corinthians. Paul's advice is very general, covers broad categories, and it is very broad in scope. For example, when he says, uh, quench not the spirit, uh, as we saw last week, he means quench not the spirit in this situation, that situation, in this situation. We, we covered several of them last week. Uh, it's, it's a broad category that he is talking about. And keep this in mind. Paul here has already laid the basis for our understanding that 
a saving relationship with God is dependent on faith. But a fruitful relationship with God depends upon obedience. They're two separate things. Let's take a look at a few verses quickly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and uh, verses 11, 12, and 13. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11, Paul says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and, char- and com- comfort." and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay, there's there's that fatherly advice. Verse 13, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men but as it, it is, in truth, the word of God. So he said, you received it. That's faith, verse 13. And he's exhorting them then to go ahead and be obedient believers just prior to that in verse 12. So again, saving relationship dependent on faith. Uh, a fruitful relationship, though, depends on obedience. And that's exactly what we find in chapter 5, verse 16, when Paul begins that list of commands all of them present tense imperatives, as we saw last week. Now, all this was summed up theologically this way. We have, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, positional holiness or positional sanctification. And we can see this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul said, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. How does he describe the Colossians? He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, you're elect, and then he says you're holy and beloved of God. That word holy means sanctified, set apart. That's their position in Christ. But when you come to 1 Peter chapter 1, for example, uh, verses 15 and following, the Bible says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. So, he says, do this because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And then he continues and says, if you call on, on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So you're already holy. Colossians, they're described as holy, positional holiness. But Peter emphasizes practical, personal, everyday obedience in the matter of being set apart unto God away from sin in 1 Peter chapter 1. So everything that Paul is saying here in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians now has to do with the practical, everyday obedience that will bring about a fruitful relationship. As a result of that relationship, will be fruitful, a fruitful relationship with God. And he is not at all being legalistic or saying that salvation comes from works, which it obviously does not. Now, all that uh, said and done to introduce things, we go back to the outline we began last week. And the main idea here is that obedience is the key to our relationship with God. And this week I've kind of inserted that, it's not on the screen, but I've inserted that idea of fruitfulness to kind of specify. Obedience then is the key to our 
fruitful relationship or to a fruitful relationship with God. Now, we can uh, determine if we have that kind of relationship by examining if there are certain traits in our life. And one trait that will be there is this, an optimistic approach to life. That's in verses 16 and uh, 17 where Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. Have a, a joyful, vibrant, happy, uh, trusting relationship in God rather than looking at all the circumstances. Boy, that's what we all need, especially today. And then he goes on to describe in verses uh, 19 and 20, the second trait that will be evident in our life if we had a, had a relationship with God where we were obedient children, and that is a submissive attitude toward God. And here's where he says, do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecies. And we had to, you know, explain that prophecies in those days were very important, but, uh, the gift of prophecy is obviously passed off the scene with the apostles and prophets. Now, we have one last point to the sermon, which we did not get to last week. So uh, sort of in, 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 in essence, we have a, a one-point sermon this week. But I guarantee you we won't fly through it. It might go quicker than last week. But uh, this is very important information here as he winds up with this third trait that's ref- that will reflect our obedient character. And that third trait is this. We need to have a discerning eye toward the world. A discerning eye toward the world. Now, an approach to life, that should be joyful, dependent, trusting in God, uh, a submissive attitude toward God, which again goes back to our obedience, in particular our being led by the Spirit of God. Now, the last thing that, that will reflect whether we are obedient believers, whether our day-to-day practical holiness is in line and what it should be is going to uh, show up, you see, in this matter of whether we are discerning. Discerning about the world we live in, the situation, the circumstances we're faced with, and, and how we respond and how we react. Now, there are three requirements I don't know if it says that specifically in your bulletin. Uh, There are three requirements. It doesn't say that, but you can add that before the A, B, and the C. Three requirements for a discerning eye. And the first one, the first requirement for discernment is examination. You've got to be able to examine everything, every situation, every circumstance that presents itself, every choice that you make, every response or reaction uh, that you have. It has to be all kept in focus. You've got to examine it all and discern whether your thoughts, your decisions, your reactions are biblical or whether they are just of the flesh. Now, we don't have any trouble responding in a fleshly way because... We're sinners by nature, and it just yeah, that's just second nature. First nature, actually, I guess I should say. Uh, chances are, when, when something that's challenging happens in your life and mine, our first response is not going to be good. It's going to be the flesh. 
But you've got to learn, we've all got to learn to catch ourselves, to stop for a moment, and put this circumstance or situation in perspective uh, and be discerning as God's children. Now, we see this in verse 21, where he continues this list of present tense, which means we have that responsibility all the time, present tense imperatives, imperative mode, which means it's a command. So he says in verse 21, test all things. Test all things. Or examine all things. Now, just like last week when I told you and explained to you that word order in the Greek language determines emphasis, we see here that it doesn't necessarily reflect in the English, but in the Greek, very specifically, the the emphasis here is on the phrase, all things. Just like when you go back to rejoice always, the emphasis was on always. Pray without ceasing, it was on without ceasing. Give thanks uh, in everything, the emphasis was on in everything. So, uh, Paul was not just giving some general advice like... Uh, you know, you would give to that young person going off to school, be careful. No, it would be, be careful all the time. There's your emphasis. So uh, that's what he's doing here. He is saying, test, examine, be discerning of all things. All things. Not just a few things. Not just some things, but all things. We've got to think biblically and act biblically. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but um, sometimes you can buy uh, jewelry, for example. You might Some of you fellows might buy your wife a necklace or something like that, a bracelet. And uh, most of the time us guys are oblivious. We don't know whether we're getting, you know... Uh, a sterling silver or just a nice shiny object, you know. <laughs> but uh, there are ways you can test and make sure. So, so you guys may want to, you know, jot this down, file it away so you have this information. If you want to know if you're buying your wife a real sterling silver necklace, you look very carefully on the back side in an obscure place and you probably need a magnifying glass, but if you see the numbers 925, that means it's sterling silver. 92.5% silver. Because pure silver is hard to, need some alloy to work in a, in a jewelry. So if it says 0.925, sometimes it says 0.900 or 0.800, that's even less silver. Well, sterling silver, 0.925. Now, every now and then, you run across old necklaces at a yard sale, or you find one around the house that somebody discarded years ago, and it's actually worth some money. Silver is at $19 an ounce right now, so uh, you can find Now, here's another way you can test silver. Just get you a magnet. If it's magnetic, it's not silver. Silver like gold is not magnetic. So, uh, you want one another way? Take a white cloth white handkerchief or something, and just, just put the necklace or whatever in there and just rub it like that for a little while. And if the cloth turns black or shows black marks, it's silver. Because silver tarnishes. So 
you know, it, it take, well, the point of this illustration is this. It takes a little bit of effort. <laughs> it takes a little bit of effort to actually figure out whether you were seeing something that you, you know, are seeing accurately. I wouldn't know by looking at something uh, whether it it was silver or whether it was some some kind of fake silver. But if you take a little effort, you know what you're doing, you can test it out and find out. And it is the same process that we have to go through with every situation and circumstance in life. The first thing you have to do is sit down and say, does the Bible say anything about this kind of situation? You would be surprised. You see, we, we turn, we, we tend to think that, oh no, the Bible doesn't say anything about this, it doesn't say anything about it. You'll be surprised if you really give it some thought and you give it some examination and you, you ask God to lead you and you really begin to meditate and think in terms of what the scripture said, what Jesus said, what the Bible said, what Paul said. Uh, th- the thoughts that will come to your mind will give you direction in that situation. Now, that process that I just described is called meditation. Now, it, it is not at all like meditation that is practiced uh, over in the Far East and, and uh, you know, Buddhism and you know, Hinduism or whatever. It's not meditation like that. It's, it's not some guru sitting around, you know, making a noise and sitting in a weird position and holding his hands in a strange way. That is not meditation. That's what's called meditation in their realm. But the scriptural meditation is entirely different. Let's, for example, take a look at uh, Psalm 1, verse 2. Here, David says, speaking of the godly man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The only thing that's going to produce real time meditation for the purpose of being able to examine anything and everything in life, the only thing that's going to produce that is if you have a delight in the Word of God. If you don't delight in the Word of God, if you don't desire to know what the Word of God says, if you don't read the Word of God, if you don't think about the Word of God, if you don't expose yourself to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, you're not going to be able to do this. Because meditation goes beyond reading it, it goes beyond hearing it, it goes beyond even understanding it, it comes down to dwelling on it and letting the Spirit of God lead you and teach you and instruct you and shape your thoughts and your reactions and your words. Let's go back to the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8. As Joshua was about to lead the people into the promised land, God, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him. And he said this in verse 8, the book of the law, this book of the law, Moses' book of the law, the five, the five first books in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Now, does that mean that Joshua was to be a preacher? No, he was a military leader. But what it does mean is he should have been, he should be meditating on the word. Because the, the, the Hebrew word meditate means to mumble. Mumble under your breath. Repeat to yourself. 
Now, you don't have to actually mumble or make noise to meditate. That, that you can mumble in your head, you know. Nobody can hear that. <laughs> so he says, uh, uh, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Day and night. I, I suggest to you, if you learn to do this, you'll even meditate while you're asleep. Now, I know that sounds crazy. But I have struggled with many sermons on how how to handle it and many of situations and circumstances on what I should do about it. And, and yet I wake up at these, sometimes at these odd times in the middle of the night and the answer will be there on my mind. So if you're focused, if you're thinking, if you're meditating, the answer can come at the oddest moment. He says, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Why? That you may observe to do. For present tense imperatives. 1 Corinthians 5.16, that you may observe to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then will you have good success. So examination is the first requirement. Let's uh, go to the second requirement, and that is determination. Determination. Discernment requires a lot of energy, the development of the habit of meditating on the Word of God and applying the Word of God to life. But that will never happen unless you are determined to make it happen. So when I'm talking about determination, I'm talking about good old-fashioned grit, okay? Sticking with it and getting the job done type of thing. And here is where Paul says this, again in verse 21, Hold fast what is good. Hold fast what is good. And good. Again, the emphasis is not on holding fast, but holding fast on what is good. Doesn't do you any good to hold fast on something that's not good. So everything that the Scripture teaches us is good. God is good. The Holy Spirit who leads us is good. We need to hold fast on what is good. Now, the phrase hold fast means to get get a grip on it and don't let go. Get a grip and be tenacious. I know we have we have a little bit of ups and downs here in this part of North Carolina. And, uh, a little ridge runs through here and there, but where I come from. Everything was straight up or straight down, pretty much. It wasn't anything on the flat for very long. And uh, as a young man, uh, loving to be out in the woods, and uh, whether it be hiking in the spring or hunting in the fall or uh, just out there for something to do, I learned that if it had rained, if it was wet, that it was very difficult to go up a mountain. Now, it gets especially treacherous in the fall when the leaves fall on top of everything else, and they're wet and slippery. It is extremely difficult to go up. It's real easy to go down. (laughs) Doesn't take any effort at all to slip back. But in in really slippery conditions, the best way to go up is get a hold of something. Whatever's there. A branch, 
a rock, a root. <laughs> Sometimes you're, you're down almost flat on the ground with your feet below you, you're pulling on something. But you've got to get a hold of something and you've got to anchor yourself to it to make any progress going up. Your feet alone won't do it. You need to be on all fours effectively. So it takes, again, a lot of effort to hold fast to God's Word. Now, the picture is this. If you're holding fast to what is good, you've got an idea now of what you should do. You maybe have been meditating on the Word. You've got a picture in your mind of how to do it. But, boy, I'm telling you what. Our problem, many times, is not that we don't know what to do. Our problem is that we don't have the tenacity to do what we need to be doing. We don't have the determination. We don't have the dedication. We we are... Boy... Gotta be an easier way. I don't like this. This kind of runs counter to my personality. This kind of is difficult for me, or this is my weak area, or whatever it is. Now, uh, you might say, well, I, I, you know, I could just, you know, I don't have to really make a lot of progress. I can just stay where you're at. No, you're not. That's why we have to hold fast to what is good. Because if we don't hold fast, we're going in the other direction. We're slipping back because we, again, have that sin nature that is always a drag, that is always pulling us away from the Word of God, away from the will of God, away from what's right and what is good. You don't have to put forth any effort to live a life that is mediocre and without dedication and... Well, no distinction, spiritually. You don't have to put any forth any effort to do that. But you have to be determined. And Paul is trying to help these people understand. They live in a horrible environment at this point in history. The temptations in their world today were indeed as much, if not more, than what we face in our world right now. And the persecution was even at a higher level than anything we are experiencing here, maybe not other places in the world. But. And he, he, he wants to, them to understand the commitment, the determination it takes to be successful. Now, that brings us to the third requirement for having a discerning mind, having discernment in regard to the world we live in. And that third requirement is abstinence abstinence. You see it in verse 22. Abstain from every form of evil. Now again, the emphasis is not on abstaining. The emphasis is abstaining from every form of evil. That's why all the way through here, the word order making certain aspects of these short sentences, these short commands emphatic is so important. Because all of us can be led of the Spirit part of the time. I mean, we, we can all, you know, be prayerful once in a while. And we don't have a whole lot of trouble being thankful every now and then, especially at Thanksgiving. 
we're reminded of it and everybody's being thankful. We, we don't have too much trouble with the idea of testing some things, but testing all things, that's, that's a whole different challenge. And so when he says abstain here, we don't have any trouble abstaining from evil in certain situations and circumstances. I mean, every one of us here could say, well, I abstain from evil. And I, I would believe you if you told me that. There, there, I mean, all of us have the ability to abstain from doing what's wrong, and we can point to Various ways we abstain from evil. But he says abstain from every form of evil. Now, <clears throat> that's, that's getting a little bit more specific. You see, what you might not see as a challenge, what you might handle pretty readily in abstaining from some evil, another person may struggle with that. But yet, though we may not struggle with that particular temptation, there is another temptation, probably a whole range of other temptations, that we do struggle with. And we in our mind, in our mind tend to get through this and get around this <clears throat> this way. Uh, the stuff over there is really bad. But when it, yeah. look, 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 I, mean, I, I don't do any of those things. That's really sinful and evil. Eh, but what, what I might struggle with, just little things. You know the old expression, little white lies? It's just as sinful as big black lies. <laughs> you know, uh, what, what we don't <clears throat> want to acknowledge is really sinful, we we kind of determine, well, they're just, you know, just little weaknesses. That's just the way I am. Not that big a deal. That's, that's kind of how we get around this thing. But the scripture, and Paul here, doesn't give us a way out. It doesn't give us a way to be less than we should be. He says, abstain from every form of evil. All of them. Now, as it is with these other commands here, none of us are going to be able to do this 100% for the rest of our life because we're human beings and, and we're going to fall short. We are sinners. But just because we're sinners and we have that sin nature, that's not an excuse either. That just makes it all the more difficult. See, once we start excusing everything, well, I can't help it. I'm just a sinner. That's just my weakness. Uh, that's just what I struggle with. You've, you've done lost the battle. Once you justify what you're doing and you just give in to it, you've lost the battle. Remember back in, oh goodness, back in the 80s, I think it was First Lady Nancy Reagan had the just say no of uh, I don't know. It was all over TV. You know, just say no to drugs. You know, it was everywhere. Uh, wonder what happened to that. <laughs> I, I don't know what happened to that specifically, uh, but I do know what the world says today, and that's never say no. 
That's, that's the world we're living in today. That's, that's the message young people are hearing in, in our society. Take a look at Psalm 1 1. We looked at verse 2 of Psalm 1 uh, earlier, but verse 1 of Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't go to an ungodly individual for your advice. Don't, don't, don't ask and base, don't ask someone who's ungodly and base what you're going to do on what they say. Remove yourself from that. Abstain from ungodly advice. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners. (coughs) You know what that means? If you're standing in the path of sinners, you're probably going the same direction. (laughs) You're probably not hindering their progress nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Notice here, he says, walks, stands, sits. In other words, he's saying, whatever you're doing, whatever the circumstances, situation, you've, you've got to abstain from ungodly counsel. You've got to abstain from following after the sinners. And you don't want to become like them because that's what you, that's where you're headed, you see. You see, most of us, we don't have any problem when it says, uh, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. We, we, we pretty readily accept that. Or, and, and we can understand uh, not standing in the path of sinners. But we so often sit in the seat of the scornful. You know what the word scornful means in the Hebrew? It means, it refers to what comes out of your mouth. Being judgmental, being critical, being unflexible, uh, being insistent on your own way. I mean, just go on and on and on. Putting yourself first, putting others down. That requires some abstinence of tongue. So these are the requirements. We're going to be discerning. We've got to examine things. We've got to be determined. And we've got to actually abstain. Pull back from. Stay out of the way of. Get out of the way of certain things. Now now that wraps up point three. In our message. And the rest of the chapter is personal between Paul and the church. It's just a way of closing a letter in loving terms. But please, please don't misunderstand. It's full of meaning. Verse 23. Now, he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. The word sanctify and the word holy, same word in the original. So we're talking about positional and practical sanctification. That's what he's been talking about. So now he says, look, I've told you 
how to live a life of practical holiness. Now I'm going to pray to God that you actually will do it. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul looks beyond our daily struggle with practical holiness here and he prays about our eventual perfection where we overcome all the struggle we have with our day-to-day holiness. And that will be when, look at it again, that you may be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word coming in the original is the word perusia in the Greek, which means presence, basically. When we come into the presence of Jesus Christ, that will happen at the rapture when he comes in the clouds for us. We'll be caught up together, if we're still alive, together with those who are resurrected. And we all stand in bodily resurrected form before and with and beside the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be in his presence. And the Bible says when we see him, we will be like him. So, we will overcome all of our struggle with this. And we will be perfectly holy as he is holy at that moment in history when that day comes. And I hope to God, and we all do, pray that it will be soon. And then he says, in reference to Jesus Christ, in verse 24, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. (laughs) This is what's promised, and this is what he's going to do. And then he adds what seems to be some, you know, just disjointed thoughts. He says, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. We charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. There's their positional holiness again, the holy brethren. But don't just skirt over these personal remarks at the end. This is very important because you see on screen here, I've got five different people depicted. We're all different. Somebody's to-do list on the top of, top left is just a reminder that they got a whole stack of stuff to do there. Over on the top right, there's a, your typical checklist. Some people use their phone. None of you write it on your hands, do you? <laughs> I know you young people do. Or it might be your typical to-do list. I, I just chose different pictures to represent different people. Who we, we all have the obligation of being obedient believers so that we can have a, a fruitful day-to-day relationship with God. And I've got a green circle around everyone. You know what that means? Well, I'm going to tell you what it means. It means that when we think about our responsibilities, our beats, we think in terms of me. This is what i got to do. And that's true. That's very true, but I want to give you a broader perspective. Here's what it ought to look like in our depiction. Why? Because we're part of each other. We are part of the body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we don't function as individuals out here on our own without the influence and the encouragement Of the church. Now, with that thought in mind, let's look at what Paul said here when he closes down. Hmm. 
in verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Paul prays for them in verse 23. But look down at verse 25. He says, Brethren, pray for us. So the church does what? The church supports and encourages us in this pursuit of practical holiness by providing prayer support. Providing prayer support. Then number two, the church also offers us mutual love and acceptance. Where do we see that? Verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. By the way, and these brethren is used here in the sense of brothers and sisters. Greet all the brethren. We are connected in Christ. We're brothers and sisters. And we greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, that would really be a problem if we took that too literally right now. Because, you know, it's hard to kiss anybody six feet away from you, right? <laughs> and I wouldn't even want to attempt it with a, <laughs> with a mask on. <laughs> okay. But we don't do that. We, we're good bad. We shake hands. It's the same principle. <clears throat> there was a time in history in these early days, in this oriental culture, where it was common when people greeted one another, whether they were Christians or not, to give them a kiss on the cheek. As I understand it, in most cases, and certainly in the church, the men would kiss men and the women would kiss women. I don't like that at all, personally. <laughs> I don't see a guy here at all. I don't want to kiss. Forgive, forgive me. But yeah, I'm on a different time in a different culture. It was common for them. It was it was just it was as common and as as personal as to shake a hand or give somebody a hug. And and Paul was not establishing specific action, he is referencing being loving and accepting in that particular culture in which they live. So the church gives us love and acceptance as, as well as prayer support. And then finally, the church provides us biblical instruction. Look again, verse 27. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle, this letter, be read to all the holy brethren. Why? Because they didn't have it in a Bible. It wasn't bound. The printing press hadn't been invented. It had to be copied by hand. And when the letter came in to the elders of the church in Thessalonica, they gathered all together and they read it. And then they talked about it. They, they, they studied it together. And they probably each one jotted down what they could. And, and then eventually copies were made. But uh, he says, when this letter arrives, get everybody together immediately. And read it for everybody's sake. So here is the greenhouse effect of the church in your life. You know, when you're raising plants in the early spring and you don't want them to get uh, nipped by a frost, you can put them in a greenhouse to protect them. The church is in essence a greenhouse where we find prayer support, mutual love and acceptance, and biblical instruction. And if you take yourself out of that setting, you're going to struggle. I know I've heard people all my life say, I don't need to go to church. You know, I, I can worship God out in the, in the woods somewhere. And I don't doubt that you can worship God out in the woods all by yourself, but you ain't going to do any good for God out there all by yourself. And you're not going to partake of any good anybody has to give to you or any edification they can provide for you out there all by yourself. The church is the place 
that God wants us to assemble regularly for these reasons.